Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. It's good to be back in a place that knows how to be properly overcast and gray and zero humidity. Um, Yeah, I've lived in the South for too long, for about 10 years, and uh, you may notice that I don't sound very Canadian for having grown up in Canada, and that's part of the reason why. Um, But it's good to be in a proper zero humidity environment, so yes. Well, uh, this morning, I would like to just spend a few moments with you. Um, I was asked to teach Sunday school. I don't know what your regular pattern of Sunday school is, but um, this was a one-off lesson that I've done in the past and decided I'd revive it on the, the, the biblical doctrine of man, of what it is that we believe about who man is and who God has created man to be. Um, so I'd like to just spend a few moments uh, considering that across the scriptures, really, and then also just in some of the, the history of Reformed theology and uh, this question of how we understand who man is. So um, why don't we pray together to start our time, and then we will just dive right in. I, did everyone get handouts that was all passed around? Very good. There'll just be some, some helpful quotes. I have some extended quotes, and it's always hard to just hear those, so that will help you just kind of follow along uh, when we arrive at them. So let's go ahead and pray, and then I'll begin our time. Father, we thank you. We thank you for a beautiful morning in Washington, and we pray, O Lord, that as we lift up holy hands and prepare ourselves to worship you, that in this hour we would be edified, that we would be built up to that task, that indeed even as we study who it is that we are, we would have a greater knowledge of who it is that you are, and that it would cause us to glorify you and sing great praise to you. Lord, be with us now. Guide us by your Holy Spirit and bless our time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the study of man, it's a, it's a doctrine sometimes called anthropology. We talk about biblical anthropology and Reformed theology. I just kind of want to begin with a question. Why study who it is that man is? Sometimes I think we maybe don't think to study that in the church, partly because, well, we're Christian, right? Shouldn't we be Godward focused? Theology is kind of the major study that we should spend our time in. And we might be tempted to think, well, there's not a whole lot to be said about who it is that man is and is created to be. And so if we say anything about man, especially sometimes in Reform circles, it's limited to the following. We, we say things like, man is sinful, man is totally depraved, and we love those doctrines. We hold them as true in the Reformed and Westminsterian tradition. I think there's more, though, that can be said about man than sin and depravity. Sometimes I think we actually overdo it in that direction. There are traditions sometimes called hyper-Calvinism that really major on sin and depravity, things that are true and right, but not the only thing that we can say about man. I think it's especially important we study man today. I don't think I have to convince you of the importance of our understanding who man is as Christians in today's society. It's a deeply confused time that we live in. You go into a modern secular university and you go in your biology class and you learn about how you 
as man came out of primordial ooze and, you know, descended from the apes. Then you go into a humanities class and then you learn all about the lofty achievements of man and what we've accomplished as societies. And while those two don't really make a lot of sense alongside each other, it's kind of a deeply incoherent vision of who man is, who we are. And so I think in the midst of that incoherence, we are seeing the fruits of that incoherence in the fact that, well, eventually at the end of the day today, it's left up to just individuals to decide what man is, decide what you are, self-conceptualize it, manifest it, whatever you might say. So I think there's a lot that we can say about the doctrine of man. Listen to the way Calvin says that we should understand who man is. Calvin writes in his Institutes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other, it is not easy to discern. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves, Acts seventeen twenty eight. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence, that is dependence, in the one God. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him scrutinize himself. Calvin's saying that if we are to truly actually understand who God is, we need to understand who we are. This is, in fact, two halves of the same whole. To understand man is to understand God. To understand God is to understand who we are. Listen to the way that Jesus puts it. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is a famous passage. Jesus is summarizing all of the law. And I just want to reflect with you how amazing it is that Jesus says these two commands are like each other. They're like each other. We would be inclined sometimes to think that the first commandment is way up here, and then way down coming in second is love of man. You know, love God, love man. And Jesus says, actually, no, these are like each other. If you are to obey the one, you obey the other. I think it's kind of basic to our love that if we love God, we know God. We love our wives. We know our wives. That, that's a dependence that we have that we need to maintain. So if we're going we're to love man, we need to know who man is. That's sort of kind of basic. So let's dive right in then. I, I think we need to pick up this question with the scriptures. What is man? This is the question of the psalmist. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. I wonder if Shakespeare had this passage in mind when he and 
is where Hamlet, from the voice of Hamlet, says, What a piece of work is man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? It's actually capturing there, I think, the deep mystery of two things that are true of us. We are both dirt and we are this amazing creature, the pinnacle of the creation as God has made us to be. All right. Well, that's all by way of introduction. Let's dive in. I've got four things. We'll float by them pretty quickly, but I want to look at first man and his origin, man in his dignity, man in his duty, and man in glory. Man in his origin, man in dignity, man in his duty, and man in glory. All right, so man in, man in origin. This is, again, a, a point of great confusion for not only people outside the church, it's in the church as well. It's very simple. We are created. We are created by God. We didn't evolve out of a lower life form. We are in an accident that's arrived here. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we are a distinct and special creation. It's not even that we are created in the manner that the rest of the creation is created. We're actually distinct, even our creation. In Genesis 1, 26 We read, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. When he picks up this intent in Genesis chapter 2, he uses a very distinct word to describe how God creates man. So when God creates the rest of the universe, he speaks. It's the Hebrew word amar. When God creates man, this word yatsar in the Hebrew is used, and it's the word for he formed. He formed. He didn't just speak and then something came from nothing. With the creation of man, God actually got into the dirt of the earth and formed man. It's a picture of an artist, of a sculptor, of someone working with clay, of giving special attention to the formation of this thing that God then calls man. And from the rest of Scripture, or from that point onward in the rest of Scripture, that same way of speaking is used to describe how God creates us. So, for instance, in Isaiah 44, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed, Yatsar, you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. And then this famous passage in which the psalmist again uses this word, Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. For you have formed Yatsar, my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So notice, 
What's actually being said there? So the original creation of Adam is God getting down into the dirt and forming Adam. But the Bible actually reflects that that continues. So it's not just that he created Adam and then by natural processes the rest of us humans came to be. Actually, the picture the Bible gives us in Isaiah 44 and Psalm 139 is that each one of us is a unique, special creation from the womb into creation, into being. Psalmist says, you formed my inward parts. You have established me. It's personal, special creation. It's kind of an amazing thing to consider, I think, especially when you think of Well, I think one of the immediate implications that jumps to mind for me is just how devastating it is to think about the the killing of that, that life, that formed life in the womb that uniquely exists by God's special creation of each one of us. What's the other implications of this doctrine? Well, I think there are many of them. Again, we're not an accident. You are not an accident. How God has made you is not an accident. He formed you. He has knit you together from your inward parts to your outer parts. Every aspect of who you are is created by God. It's not an accident of natural processes. What this means then is that we belong to God. The psalmist reflects this. Psalm 100 verse 3. Know the Lord. He is God. He, it is he who made us. And we are his. We are his. What this means then is that our identities, what we are, it's not self-determined, is it? I don't get to decide who I am. Actually, who I am is received from God. It's a gift that I am given and I'm called to steward. So all of the nonsense of Hollywood and Disney that you have a right to follow your dreams and determine your own destiny and that sort of thing, it's actually contrary, basically, to this doctrine of special creation. It's the reason we train up boys in the way they should go, because they don't get to determine what it means to be a boy and what it is that they get to do. It's actually given them by God. What that means is given them by God, by their special creation. This is an entire opposition to modern theories of gender where we're just sort of randomly formed by chance, this compilation of molecules and chromosomes. And so if it's chance, you can redirect it and mutilate it and reassign its gender and all that sort of thing. No, that's made by God. It's given to you. It's yours to steward. Secondly, That was man in his origin, man in his dignity, the image of God. This is a really core and mysterious teaching within the scriptures. Man is made in God's image. Theologians have really debated this actually quite extensively because the Bible just says it. And it actually doesn't always give us a lot of explanation of what it means that God creates man in his image. This is, of course, from Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image after our Likeness. Some theologians, Calvin, for instance, said that the soul of man, well, that's God's image. That's where it's contained. Some have said that it's man's reason. I think that's 
particularly problematic when you think about the fact that, well, some people can't reason like other people. So is the image of God given in proportion in that measure? I think that's maybe problematic. Some, I don't think the scriptures actually speak in that term. So they don't actually talk about the image of God being a part of man, the way your radio is a part of your car. They actually speak of just man, full stop. Man is the image of God. I think one way to understand this is actually to see the ways that ancient kings, for instance, and think of the ways that, that men have used images of themselves. I'll go there. So ancient kings, I brought that, that up. Kings throughout their domain, they set up images of themselves. They'll oftentimes establish, you know, statues of themselves throughout their domain. This is a sort of memorial to their standing, their authority, their position. This is something that is in ancient times. It's in modern times. I have in your uh, handout there a statue in Kharkiv of Vladimir Lenin. You know who this person is, the Bolshevik Revolution. And he has established there in Kharkiv in Ukraine, or he had, he had established there a statue of himself, a symbol of his control, his power, his authority. Which is why that next picture isn't just that the Ukrainian people really have a problem with the modern art of, you know, their time, right? That's not what's going on there. What's going on in that second image? They're tearing it down. They're tearing it down. And what's that symbolic of? Rejecting his ideas. Rejecting his ideas, his authority. We'll have none of it. I think this is kind of a picture of what God, in fact, is doing when he establishes on earth living, walking images of who he is. An emblem, in one sense, of his authority. A delegation of his authority, of his kingship, of his rule. I think this ought to inform the ways we understand, again, this modern attack on who man is. They're not just trying to get at man. What are they trying to get at? They're trying to get at God. Who God is. They can't get at him directly, but they can sure tear apart and rip down and pull apart what man is, make him a plastic, malleable, self-defining creature, all in an act of overt rebellion, of heresy against the Lord. So man in his totality, I think, is the image of God. This is the way the scriptures speak. This is the way Herman Bovink puts it. We must highlight in accordance with scripture in the Reformed Confession the idea that a human being does not bear or have the image of God, but that he or she is the kingdom of God, is the image of God, rather. As a human being, a man is the son, the likeness or offspring of God. So God has placed us on earth as living, breathing representatives of himself. There are several key implications that have come down through the Christian tradition because of this basic fact, this theology of the image of God. One is that we're created with intrinsic value and worth. That's not a message that Disney manufactured. It's actually something that God came up with. 
This is why in Genesis 9, when he speaks to Moses, or Noah rather, coming out of the ark, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So this concept of human dignity, which gets banded about, and lots of secular people really like that too, they didn't make that up. God did. He established that we have worth, that we have dignity, for we are made in his image. Well, that's our dignity. What would we know of our duty? He gives us something to be about in this world. I think every time this is talked about, a good place to start is to just look at the creation mandate, uh, this giving of dominion, this rule that's given to man to go throughout the world and be fruitful and multiply. We could talk about that. that. That's a wonderful place to begin. I think that's a fruitful place to begin. I think you all are doing a pretty good job of it, it seems to me. That aspect of the kingdom, you're having lots of children, it's wonderful. Big, big, I'm from a big family, I'm a fan of big families. It's the fun part. But I think we can, another way we could talk about man's duty is through this idea that comes through the Old Testament of man's threefold office. It's interesting. This, we often hear this spoken of of Christ, right? That Christ is a threefold office. You guys familiar with this? The threefold offices of Christ? Well, this is something that in Christ emerges through the Old Testament as something God actually gives man to do and to be. So prophet, priest, king. And all of this begins in Genesis and then stretches throughout the Old Testament into the history of Israel, into the Old Testament law. And I think it's a really helpful way to think about the kind of threefold aspect of what God has placed us here to do, what our duty is, kind of old-fashioned term. But we could talk about his prophetic duty. Man has a prophetic duty. We might just say man's duty is to tell the truth. It's to tell the truth. It's to tell the truth about God and who God is. We are to proclaim his excellencies, First Peter says. Or, as Jesus teaches it in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I see Jesus there as talking about something of our prophetic duty. They are to see us and to hear us and through us to go where? To us? Do they glorify us and Speak of how great we are? No. They go through us to God. If man is doing his job well as a prophet, an image of God, he is directing the attention of all mankind to our God. That's one of the chief duties we actually have. It's why all of us, in some measure, not just preachers or elders or those called to teach in a formal setting, have this duty to teach to teach our children, teach our coworkers, to actually direct them and speak truth about who God is and what he has done. It's the prophetic duty of man. It's a proclamatory work. We speak on behalf of God. 
We have a priestly duty. It's very fascinating to see the ways that Genesis in particular establishes a priestly duty for men. It's interesting. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Those are two very interesting words, to work it and keep it. They're actually really prominent words throughout the Old Testament. The words abad and shamar. And they're used actually really most significantly in the Torah to describe the priestly work of the Levitical system. So, for instance, in Numbers 3, verse 7, they shall keep guard over him and the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. He's speaking to the priests, and that word keep guard is that word shamar. To keep is to keep guard or to observe in some way. But also in Numbers 3, verse 7, as they minister at the tabernacle. That's that word abad, to serve, to work. So actually, when God establishes man in the garden, it's very interesting. We're to do a priestly work of working it, serving it, ministering to it, and keeping it, guarding it, guarding it. What this means then, and the New Testament makes this very plain, that we all have priestly duty. We are priests in the household of God, a nation of priests, as the Apostle Peter calls us. What does this mean? Well, it means that our work, what we are doing in our nine to five, in our Monday through Saturday, six days shall you labor. Our Monday to Saturday is actually a duty given by God and actually a form of worship, part of the priestly calling of what we are to do. Our work is a type of worship. Now, it's not worship in the same way that what we're doing here is worship on a Sunday morning, and this is an excuse to just work on Sunday because my work is worship. That's not how God has set it up. But we ought to understand that all of our work is done before God. It's commanded by God. We have to work. All of us to a man. Okay, not just the men, not just those who collect the paycheck. Women work. They have duties of working as part and sharing in this image of God. Doesn't have to be outside the home. Much of it is inside the home, but you work. It's your duty to work before God. This is part of your worship before God. It means that our work is subject to God. I think we have for too long in our world kind of bifurcated our lives so that what we do on Sunday is separated off from how we conduct ourselves in our lives and our work. It's just not the way the scriptures speak of who we are in our work. It's all subject to God according to his commands before him. So what we're doing when we're working, it's not just simply getting money to survive. It's not simply just you know, because we need to eat, and that's really important. It's actually part of our worship and of uniquely how God has created us to be and commanded us to be, really, from the, New, the Old Testament onward. But thirdly, we could talk about his kingly duty, man's kingly duty. This is really reflected very powerfully in the dominion mandate. 
so named because of God's word there in Genesis. And let him have dominion. That word is a kingly term, dominion. It's just the word radah in Hebrew, to rule. Let man rule. We are called as man in our duty to exercise authority over all of the creation. We have a responsibility of authority over all creation. Again, this is something that is uniquely called to in the hierarchy of creation and the way God has established it to man, but actually also to all in their spheres of influence and authority. So husbands, you have, father, you have fatherly authority that you must exercise over your home. You have boss authority, the people who work for you. And all of that is part of what God has made you to be. Mothers, as you teach your children and you raise them up in the ways of the Lord, as you go throughout your day exercising your authority over your home. What this means then is that when we exercise authority, as we are kings in our imaging of God, we need to ask the question, what does that authority look like? What does that authority look like? Well, most basically it looks like God's authority. We're actually just imitating God in that rule and that authority. It means we have to ask the question, what is a just ruler? What does justice look like as parents over your children? I think this is so often something that's not always talked about in our parenting. But our exercise of authority must be just must not be tyrannical, and we must look to the pattern of God in what it means to be just in authority over them, what it means to be just as a boss, what it means to be merciful as a boss, given the fact that God and his authority shows mercy. All of the ways that we, whether men or women, whatever it is in our sphere of authority, all of the ways that we exercise it, we must ask this question How do we image God in that authority? How do we image God in that authority? Listen to how Bavik kind of summarizes this whole thing, what I've been saying in one quote. Man is the prophet who explains God, proclaims his excellencies. He is the priest who consecrates himself with all that's created to God as a holy offering. He is the king who guides and governs all things in justice and rectitude. And in all this, he points to God, to him who is the only begotten of the Father and the firstborn of all creatures. Well, finally, I want to look at man in his glorification. Man in his glorification. We'll just touch on this briefly before I'll just kind of open for questions and discussion. It's interesting. There were, in the ancient world... Gnostics who believed that Jesus actually came to save us out of our humanity, Christian Gnostics. So to be saved by Jesus meant that really that part of us that we would call man goes away at the end of it all. We'll be saved out of our bodies into this spiritual realm and we'll enter 
into a spiritual realm. And it's not just a Gnostic problem. It's a problem that oftentimes is attached to modern conceptions of heaven. Heaven is pictured as this, this purely spiritual realm where those things that kind of make us up as humans, well, they're just going to pass away and go away. This is not the picture of glorification that the scriptures speak of. It's not the picture of glorification that Jesus speaks on of. First of all, it's very fascinating. Jesus is a wonderful point of reflection on this point because he takes on flesh. He becomes man. The God of heaven and earth enters this bodily existence that we now possess. The incarnation is this remarkable bridge in that way. It bridges God and man. And that in itself is a fairly clear indicator of the dignity and worth of man. If God himself can become man, this thing we call our human nature that he has become and taken to himself, well, that's a pretty remarkable thing. But secondly, there's an even more remarkable thing. He remains man. We're going to talk about this in length when I, in my sermon this morning, so I won't dwell on it long, but he didn't just dip his toe and decide to just experience it for a little bit of what it was like to be man and then, well, exit out of his body when he ascended into heaven. He remains man. So a man, a human nature, is now at the helm of everything, of all creation. He remains man for all eternity. Jesus is a picture of our glorification. Again, I don't want to dwell on this long because we'll talk about it in our sermon from Luke 24, but this ought to transform everything with the ways that we think of where it is that we're going and what it is God is going to do to us. He's actually not going to destroy those aspects of us that are man. He's not going to, as some people believe, deify us. We're not just going to become God. He's going to glorify us. He's going to perfect us. He's, in fact, even going to exalt us to a place of unprecedented glory, even as he's exalted Christ. I think this, once again, changes everything of what it is that we're about. Just about everything we do in this life, in one way or another, it's not just busy work. It's not just getting by. It's not just survival. Sometimes I know some of us can feel that way. We're just white-knuckling it. We're hanging on. We're surviving. But that's not the nature of how God speaks of what it is we do and how it is that we are, where it is we're going. Listen to the way he speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. In the words of Paul, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, in context, Paul's actually talking about the glories of the glorified bodies that we will receive, the spiritual body that we, we will receive when we are made like Christ, when we see him as he is. That's that really great passage on our glorification. And he ends that whole passage in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You're going to take it with you, brothers and sisters, taking it into glory. In fact, as Richard Gaffin has put it, 
our sanctification, what we're doing and making ourselves holy right now, is simply glorification begun now. We are calling all of what we do as parents, as husbands, as wives, as children, as workers, as employers, as employees, all of that labor is not in vain. It will be taken with us into glory, perfected in glory. I think we need a little more of what Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about in his famous sermon, actually. He preached this on the campus. I think it was Cambridge. I can't remember. But the weight of glory. This is C.S. Lewis. It's an extended quote. I'll read the whole thing. I think it's one of my favorite things that I've read. I think it's the perspective we need to maintain when we think about who it is that man is. He's talking about our glorification. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as now you, such as you now meet if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. I think Lewis is capturing something of the grave realities of what we're talking about when we talk about who man is. That he's not just wicked and depraved. Actually, he's far more in what God has made him to be. In any case, we'll draw it there to a close with that quote. Are there any questions, any discussion, things that come to mind as you guys reflect on these things? There's probably a lot. Tom. I'm curious. Um, obviously, this is sort of the, the issue of the day in terms of um, theology, I think, yeah. that drives this difference in worldview, that drives the extremes that we're seeing. Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are on what the solution might be. We have states like Minnesota now who are passing bans on the things that are the, the, the pet um, the pets of those that hold to a different view of man. So they're yeah. saying you can't, you can't do surgeries, you can't do things like that. 
um, in other jurisdictions, so sort of a force top-down. Is that the way to go, or is it the church working in individual lives demonstrating the truth of the doctrine of man that's going to make a difference? Do you, how do you see this playing out? I, I mean, I think simply I would say both. I think it's actually both bottom-up and top-down. Like part, of, part of what I think goes on in the world, part of the reason I try to take this tactic, and I think Lewis is taking this tactic, is, is trying to actually just present that what people are doing in mutilating and butchering themselves and, and kind of reassigning surgery and all this kind of stuff is actually denigrating something that's really beautiful. Like the concept of the beauty of man and how God has created him and the glories of marriage. I mean, like marriage is, as God created it, it pictures the most ultimate of spiritual realities that Christ in the church, according to Ephesians 5, right? The glories of our work, you know, instead of just having a rather humdrum, you know, well, this is what I do to just subsist and, and survive, that actually there are glories to that. You know, I so say, I think... Part of what I'd love to see the church do is kind of on that bottom-up rung um, have more of a posture of just kind of presenting the glories of the Christian and biblical and God-ordained life um, in the beauty of, you know, families worshiping and fellowshipping together and loving each other. You know, I think the church uniquely has that opportunity. Um, I think sometimes we just major too far, too much on the madness of of what they're doing and the folly of what they're doing without actually presenting the alternative, which is the glories of what the Christians are doing. So I think that's one thing. But then I also think, you know, as we have opportunity, um, the law of the land is a teacher and a tutor. That's the way Paul speaks about law. And um, I think we have opportunity to advocate for legalizing, you know, especially children being butchered beyond repair, mutilated beyond repair. Um, yeah, I'm certainly a fan of both as we have opportunity and as God has given us, you know, in our specific ministries uh, to do that. So, yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. The, the image of God is often brought up in more progressive Christian circles to describe, um, for example, why we would appreciate the work of unbelievers. Yeah. It came up even in some discussions in the revoice context yeah. related to um, the work of unbelievers yeah. in homosexual communities. Um, do you feel? Where do you feel like that doctrine is being misused? Yeah, in the church more broadly. Yeah. So I think in the revoice setting, they're just trying to baptize the glories of something that's quite perverse and ugly. And so I would just disagree on that front. I think actually the principle, though, admiring the great capacities that even some men have had who were, you know, apart from grace and apart from God. I mean, this is all, this is all true. It belongs to God. I mean, the reason that man, the reason Elon Musk and you know, accomplish what he accomplishes is because in some way, in some common grace way, he is fulfilling the creation mandate. Like he, he is actually doing what God commanded him to do in some measure, not in perfection and certainly not in, 
in a state of grace, but he's doing that because God imprinted it on him, that desire and that pursuit of that glorious and lofty goal. Uh, so I think admiring the great work that even unregenerate men unwittingly do to glorify God, um, and certainly aren't saved in doing that, but I think that is still something we can do. We don't have to, I don't think we don't have to, we don't have to willing, willfully put down non-Christian work. You know, we can actually admire it when it's beautiful and good and true and reflects accurately our creator and what he's given us to do. So there's kind of a strange mix there, you know? Um, but I think in the case of just, you know, revoices, redeeming gay treasures or that sort of thing. I think it's just, that's not actually anything beautiful. That's perverse and counter-creational and quite ugly uh, because of it. So, does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. When you covered, uh, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, I was just thinking about how that gets verbalized in our culture in the world of athletics and music and perhaps uh, rhetoric for example people just will recognize and say that's god-given talent and that they say that pretty regularly yeah and actually i think it is like when we see the heights of human achievement and we're we're in a stadium and we see something you know a man do something that shouldn't be possible. Like, there's a reason we're yanked out of our seats because that is, there's a glory there. It's a human glory. Uh, but, but there's a reason it magnetizes and grabs our attention and we want to see it, you know? Uh, it's because God has created mankind, even in its you know, worst and ugliest fallen state, still a very glorious thing. Uh, something he has destined for glory. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm just curious when it comes to meaningful work or just work in general. I've I've heard lots of people in my circles from one time or another, but especially with say people quite a bit younger than me. Um, I just want to do something meaningful in my life. And so if somebody came into your office and they were seeking counsel, specifically when it comes to work, and more specifically when it comes to eight-hour-a-day work, that does seem to me what they're kind of focused at, and they're not really focused on the other aspects of their life. So if you could narrow in on this eight-hour or ten-hour window for the average person, what would you say to them when they say, I just want to do something meaningful? I'd say there's a reason you desire that. I think that's a God-given desire. We should want to do meaningful work. Um, I think in a fallen world, we're often given or or consigned to jobs that don't feel meaningful, um, that aren't aren't things that automatically or even obviously feed into the kingdom of God and into our ultimate destiny. And I think even there, our faithfulness in doing so, you know, in the little things, is a testimony to the way God would have us be. And yet I would want to be careful on that. I think sometimes there's this kind of ways that Christians speak where sort of like, you know, all your work is, I'll put it this way. I think 
sometimes Christian men envision their work as being nothing more than just serving their main sphere of life, which is their families. And I think that's an important sphere of what God has made them to do. But it's a good thing to have your work be also in the service of the kingdom. And I'm not just talking about like pastoral work or that sort of thing, but to try and bring your work into conformity and in service of the kingdom of God. There's a reason that you feel dissatisfied when that's not the case. And it's because that's not the way God intended it to be. He intended for our work to be meaningfully contributing to the kingdom. And so without that turning into some sort of perverse dissatisfaction that causes them to do something foolish, I say, you know, if you have opportunity to change your career into something where you can more meaningfully, you know, work in the service of the kingdom, um, you know, encourage other Christians in your work, then I think you should pursue that. Um, so both of those things, I think, are true. Contentment and then also seeking, if possible, to meaningfully bring your work into conformity with Christ and the kingdom. Yeah. Yes. Have another perspective. Yeah. Go for it. Well, I'm going to, he's my husband. He's a male yeah. man. Yeah. He's been a male man for 30 years. He is doing yeah. a work that makes people happy. Yes. It is what he is assigned to do on this earth. And if we could change our perspective yeah. about what we're doing, mm-hmm. if you're bagging groceries, yeah. if you're fixing someone's computer, yeah. if you're helping somebody calculate numbers, mm-hmm. You're taking a huge weight right. off of somebody. If you're sweeping floors, yeah, that is what God has called you to do. Yes, He's given you this opportunity. I read an author called Jen Karen, mm-hmm. who is my favorite author. Yeah, and her character, Father Tim, his prayer every day is, "May I be a blessing." Yeah, today. So maybe put it into perspective. Mm-hmm. Men tend to be uh, visionaries future lookers, yeah. but what you're doing today mm-hmm. is beyond your bringing home a paycheck. Right. You're being available to somebody yeah. who might need you. Right. Okay. You're being, you're looking for those opportunities where you can yes. witness to somebody or just say, hey, you know what? I'm praying for you. Yeah. yeah. Your coworkers and the people that you touch. Right, right. So remembering that. Yes. So I'm not, yeah, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I, I'm not saying that by a man wanting to bring their work into conformity. I think that is bringing your work into conformity with Christ and his kingdom. So when you are doing that work well of making the mail run, you know, that's a, that's a wonderful way in which something our society depends on, right? Multiple ways. And so there's something um, beautiful and dignified about that and certainly in service. I'm not talking about, you know, a lot of people think, okay, well, that means going and starting an orphanage in Africa and living off of that. And I, I just think that's, that's unrealistic. But seeking to bring still your work into conformity in that way and to redeem it and be contented in it, I think more when I say that sort of thing, I think more of like the person who works for Google, you know, who's like working actively, keeping their head really low in like a corporate industry that's going the opposite direction of the kingdom and is deeply dissatisfied in that. I say, like, you, it's pretty okay for you to be deeply dissatisfied with that. that that's not, that's a challenging position to be in, uh, where your work is not obviously serving the kingdom, and you're maybe just paper pushing for them. Uh, so, but even that, I think there is a picture, and the Bible gives portraits of Joseph and other men who work faithfully within those systems. And, um, 
yeah. So go ahead. It's, it's an interesting conundrum of looking at what those who were servants, slaves, yes. in the New Testament context, Paul's telling them, I would argue that God's put you there, right. work for him and do it. But we find ourselves in a situation where we don't live in that same social order. Yeah. And we can make choices based on where our heart is moving yeah. us and where, what our mind is telling us as to the, the, the job you just talked about. Yeah. So. yeah. And Paul does give a really good model of that. You know, if a slave is a slave, serve his master. He's to serve his master with thanksgiving as unto the Lord. But, you know, if he's a free man, then go be free. You know, like, be as he is. Um, and I got... That does help us navigate that. Attention. Any questions? Chris? It's, it seems like this topic of anthropology is ground zero for our culture yeah. right now. I wonder if you could comment on whether you think it's ground zero for apologetics as well, and that we should perhaps get very comfortable in having this conversation not just within the church, no. but outside the church. I do think we need to get more comfortable with this conversation outside the church. I tend to think it's not so much taught as caught, if you could catch that distinction. Um, you know, I don't think that we can just tell people who they are. I think you have to show people who they are and show it in just the glories of your own example. And the, again, in the beauties of your home life and in the ways you love your wife and cherish her and, um, the ways your children are growing up. And I mean, I think that's going to become the apologetic is, and it's already becoming the apologetic um, is the manifest fruit of, of that. Just what we're presenting to them by sight, not even by having to teach it. Um, And the more we can do that in our churches is just present by sight, the glories of what it means to live according to the way that God's made you designed you to be. I think the arguments just kind of fall at that point. They just, you know, I look at the ways that the transgender movement has become this grotesque and twisted and horrifyingly ugly movement, you know. And so you just, you just go online and you just watch videos of people just being horrifyingly ugly. And I think the basic truth of, of the biblical and Christian way of life is going to win against that. That's not a hard argument to make when you have godly examples of you know, holiness and the fruit of righteousness. Um, and, yeah. So I do, think we, I do think we have to become more comfortable um, with just kind of openly stating this, not in an ugly way, but because this is the beauty of what God's created, and it's good. So enjoy it, and let others see that you enjoy it. And let transgenderism fall, which is going to. I mean, it's just, it's so incoherent, and we're already kind of seeing that happen, you know, the detransition movement, um, this sort of return to categories of nature, you know, that, that God created the world in a certain way and we are to live according to it. I think there's, we should be really hopeful about that. Anything else? Any other thoughts? Appreciate the interaction. This is a big topic and I do think it is the ground zero for our day, um, 
And I just think we have a lot of resources, a lot of resources. I think, you know, one of the things that I've been really helpful, helped by and just even researching for this and reading various perspectives, reading C.S. Lewis is I think for a long time, um, the Christian church has had very little to say about who man is besides that kind of doctrine of total depravity. We're sinful, we're depraved, God's glorious, you're not. And that's not quite true. That's not the way God speaks of who we are. Um, it's actually quite the opposite. So let me close in prayer and then I'll, uh, yeah, we can fellowship for a little while. Lord, we come before you and we give you thanks for the great clarity and coherence of what you have done. First of all, in creating us, O oh Lord, we are thankful that you took it upon yourself to indeed make us. And to make us is something that you took pleasure in, that you delighted in, that you walked with, that you fellowshiped with. And, O oh Lord, something that we have broken. Lord, we pray that for all those caught in deception and sin and antagonism towards you and towards your design would be softened. The gospel of Jesus Christ to the message that he has come to restore what has been lost. Indeed, restore our fellowship with God. So, Lord, give us the grace to live this out. Give us the grace that we need to be the people that you call us to be. Men and women, bosses and employees and Everywhere that you have placed us, we pray that you would make us faithful. We pray it in your holy name. Amen.